Hello everyone, I'm Daniel Bryant and I'd like to welcome you to the Ambassador Living on the Edge podcast, the show that focuses on all things related to cloud-native platforms, creating effective developer workflows and building modern APIs. Today I'm joined by Matt Klein, creator of the Envoy Proxy. I've followed Matt's work for many years now, and not only have I learned a bunch from him about modern networking, service mesh, and API gateways, but I've also learned a lot about creating effective dev-to-prod workflows. Matt's got some great ideas around implementing continuous delivery pipelines, how we release functionality from them, and in this podcast, I was keen to dive into these topics in more detail. Matt has a fantastic community presence. He's often seen in the Envoy communities, the CNCF communities, and he's not shy of voicing an opinion or two as well. His arguments are always well-reasoned, and so when Matt talks about an interesting technology or a new approach, I always add it to my research backlog. If you like what you hear today, I would definitely encourage you to pop over to our website, that's getambassador.io, where we have a range of articles, white papers, and videos that provide more information for engineers working in the Kubernetes and cloud space. You can also find links there to our latest releases, such as the Ambassador Edge stack, our open source Ambassador API gateway, and also our CNCF hosted telepresence Kubernetes tool too. Hey Matt, welcome to the show and thanks for joining me today. Could you introduce yourself to the listeners, please? Thank you for having me. My name is Matt. I'm a software engineer at Lyft. At Lyft, I focus mostly on system reliability, where I spend about 50% of my time. I spend the other 50% of my time doing industry work, where I lead the open source project called Envoy. I, I think the highlight continues to be seeing the just uh, fantastic growth of Envoy and just the entire community around it is absolutely awesome. So today I want to chat, pick your brains, Matt, around developer experience and developer loops, sort of the ability to rapidly code, test, deploy, release, and verify. Now, without naming any names, sort of protecting the uh, innocent, could you describe your worst developer experience or your worst dev loop from idea to code to production? Oh, wow. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to answer that in a... (laughs) in a slightly different way, which is that I always personally have focused on circumventing any <laughs> any bad developer experience. And by that, I mean, there have been many times in my career where I have gone out of my way to, let's say, not use an organization's official development <laughs> tooling. You know, I've, I've gotten uh, like a service to be able to build on my local machine so that I can edit on it directly without using the sanctioned Docker containers, et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> et cetera. So I am very notorious for you know, making sure that I am able to efficiently get work done. And I I think, you know, everyone has a different definition of what that means. And that's obviously, Mm -hmm. you know, the the focus of this podcast, but I I take it very seriously that I can make fast, fast progress. So I, I don't know that I can talk about the worst case scenario, mainly because I tend to mold whatever is the sanctioned approach into something that actually (laughs) works for me. That totally makes sense, Matt. What about a best developer loop then? Can you share sort of your best DevX? Yeah, I I think one thing that has become really clear, at least, you know, from from a recent industry perspective, is that we have obviously lots of companies have moved towards a um, microservice world, a serverless world. You know, there's obviously increasing uptake of things like Kubernetes. And what I've seen, you know, from most of an most of an industry perspective is that a lot of organizations, they try very hard to have the development experience model what people actually run in production. And, you know, what that means is potentially 
you know, giving every developer their own Kubernetes cluster, or, you know, and then when you layer things on top, like having a service mesh, actually having Envoy on there and the entire, you know, the entire Envoy config and all the different services and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what I can tell you <laughs> is that I have, I have never personally seen an organization do that well. And by do it well, I mean, do it in a way that is not painful for the people that are developing software on that system, just because it is incredibly difficult to make a development environment both look like production and actually stay up to date like production. So, so when you talk about my personal best development flow, I tend to take a similar approach for most projects that I work on. And, you know, that approach is making sure that I can run a fairly sophisticated set of tests on my local machine without any external dependencies. I think you'll hear a lot of people talk about, you know, they call it the test pyramid, right? Where it's like, you know, you're supposed to have most of your tests are unit tests, and then they call them like integration tests and end-to-end -end tests, or, you know, people have different words for these things. But what I have found personally, and I've personally had fairly great success with this, is investing in a good set of tools so that on my local machine, I can get very high quality test coverage is quite important. And that means, for example, for services, it actually means investing in the capability of not just doing unit tests with mocks, because although that is useful, that alone is fairly notorious for um, not having good end-to-end -end coverage. What I have found very useful is actually building, you know, what I would call local machine integration tests. So for example, having fake clients that run through my service and then actually fake servers, which potentially mock actual responses or actual flows. And what I found through not only working on Envoy, but on similar systems and different types of internet services over the last 10 years, is that by having a good mix of these things, of having a good you know mix of unit tests with mocking to hit some of the more difficult edge cases, but investing in a fairly sophisticated local integration test framework, I can get very, very good coverage of the system without leaving my local machine. And then a whole separate conversation is I trust the testing and production process through feature flags and all of the normal ways that people do things like actually test their code in production. So that's my personal best flow is basically being able to do 95 to 97% of my uh, development on my local machine. And then for the things that I can't do, you know, to be able to actually run them in a staging environment or even in a partially deployed production environment and just see how that actually goes. One small anecdote is that in, you know, the last five years now, actually, that I've been working on Envoy at Lyft, I think I can count on my one hand the number of times that I've had to actually do development with other physical systems at Lyft. Like it, it, it just hasn't happened. I mean, we've been able to model 
almost all of behavior through a sophisticated set again of fake clients and fake servers and 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 that's not just you know like like a service client that could be a back end like a like a rate limit service or an auth service or something along those lines so i think folks can get a lot farther than they probably would think by focusing on a fast local development flow yeah, that totally makes sense, Matt. You mentioned about, you know, sort of effectively creating out um, the dependencies, mocking, stubbing. Is that scalable, though? I could almost see a thing where like, every developer is creating their own virtual service. Correct. Right. So where I have seen the more successful organizations tackle this is, I think, as organizations move towards structured services. So basically using things like IDL, whether that be protobuf or thrift or something like that, you know, if the API itself is structured, it allows a central tool to basically generate mock services. And that is a a very powerful way that people can tackle this problem. So that, for example, if people say write services in Go or Python or Java or something along those lines, as long as you have a common understanding of what the RPC layer speaks, you can relatively, and I'm using air quotes here, you can relatively easily generate service stubs and service clients that you can set expectations on. And that can be a very powerful way of writing these end-to-end tasks because the reality, again, is that if you're writing a service even in a large microservice architecture, typically you're talking to a subset of the overall service graph, right? So it's like you have your typical communication partners. And again, like it's not that any of these things are perfect. There's always going to be bugs, but at at the end of the day, if you have a service architecture, you have an API for a reason. And that API is so that you can be decoupled from the development of your service partner. So I've always found it somewhat ironic that, you know, people are theoretically moving to a microservice or a service oriented architecture, yet they feel that before they can ship code, they have to spin up like 75 services and run this thing. And, you know, that's when I think, I think the phrase now is distributed monolith. And I, 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 I think that that's a really good indication that you have a distributed monolith when you feel that you need to spin up, you know, 80 services and do some type of integration task to feel confident that you haven't actually broken something. If you've developed APIs, you know, and you've stuck with them for the vast majority of development, you, you should be able to adhere to these contracts. And again, that's not to say that there aren't going to be bugs. And that's why, you know, you also have to focus on the production rollout component of, you know, stage rollout, canary deployments, things like that. I mean, there's a whole other topic here, but I'm a, I'm a big believer <laughs> that if you focus on a quote fast interlude development process, which is mostly your local machine, coupled with a robust production deployment system, I, I personally think that is the fastest way of developing. I think organizations, and again, I'm not going to name names here, but I think that organizations that invest a, a huge amount of resources in trying to do that replication of your development environment to look like production, I have personally, and I, you know, obviously there's, there's lots out there, so I probably haven't seen it. I'm sure some people are doing this, but I have not personally seen that done well 
in a way that I think is a net positive ROI. Yeah, I think my experience is broader lines with that too, Matt. One of the things I've seen folks struggle with is data management. Then, have you got any thoughts on that? So, as in testing and sort of like production like data, right. how do you capture that? How do you recreate it? How do you test with that? Super, super hard problem. And I'm going to be perfectly honest with you, which is that that is that is not my forte. There are lots of people that have a lot more experience with doing data migrations and, and general data management. So. I don't feel super comfortable speaking to this point, but I I think it's always a topic of conversation, which is you know, how do you make test data look like production data, et cetera, yep. et cetera, et cetera. And again, it's just one of those areas where I don't know that I've ever seen it done well, just because it's an incredibly hard problem. You know, you have in production data volumes that are always going to dwarf what you have in, in dev. You have historical data, which is very, very hard to model. You have PII concerns, so it's not like you can give every developer production data. It just doesn't make sense. So, you know, this comes back to you're not looking for a 100% solution in dev, right? But you're looking for the 90 or the 95% solution. So you're looking for a situation in which you can mock not only your clients and your servers to do, you know, what I would call local end-to-end or local integration testing, but you're going to want to mock and have some capability if your service talks to data stores. And again, not, 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 all, not all services do that. So, you know, one other general design pattern that I've seen work well is to limit the number of services that actually talk to data stores, right? For this, for this very reason, you can limit the number of entities in your service graph that actually have to have to deal with this problem, which, which makes it simpler for the majority of services. I, I think having the capability of some local environment, again, in which you can use something that looks like your data store and populate it with test data, you can get pretty far. Is it going to be a 100% solution? No. Is it going to be pretty good? Yes. You know, as you find issues, can you backfill it with problem cases? Sure. But again, this comes back to the need for a very rigorous production deployment process, right? And there are people that are absolute experts in terms of how to do data migration, you know, how to do data shadowing, like how to do data comparisons. And I'm, I'm not that person. I think that's a fascinating topic. But I think what I would say is that, again, I just, I've never seen it worthwhile to try to model everything that happens in production in, in dev, because it's almost like an asymptotic curve. You can, get very, <laughs> yeah. you can get very far for a reasonable amount of effort, but that last 10% is a Herculean effort. And honestly, it, it might not even be possible. So yeah. I think knowing knowing when to stop and then knowing when to shift your investment into uh, safe production deployment mechanisms, in my personal opinion, is a better use of engineering resources. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I like your mention of ROI, That's something I'm continually working on. Can I get your thoughts, Matt, on things like connecting up local and remote dev environments? Obviously, we've got telepresence, like CNCF sure. hosted tools, a bunch of other ones, garden, scaffold. I mean, this this really comes back to what I was saying before, which is that it, it, it's not that these things don't work. I mean, I, I have seen organizations do them and I, I, I work at organizations that, that <laughs> yeah. you know, use these products. I, I think there are interesting things to consider, you know, I mean, there are 
latency concerns, right? It's like there, you know, so you have to start thinking about what, what do you run locally? Like, what do you run remotely? How does the code syncing work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not saying that it can't work. Like I, clearly (laughs) people are investing in these things that are just very technically complicated. And that's, Mm -hmm. and that's what I was saying before is that for me personally, it's not clear that, that investment ends up again having that positive ROI versus allowing people to do the majority of their development on their local machine without leaving that machine. And then in the small set of cases, okay, like we can figure out a way of running, you know, like a like a staging type cluster where we can run services and maybe do some extra testing and then obviously have our production rollout system. So I think a lot of these systems like telepresence are personally very interesting. It's not clear to me how scalable they actually are, but that's that's me. No, that's intriguing, Matt. I love the value of opinion very much. So maybe um, dialing it back a little bit, you mentioned about, say, the rollout process. So canarying, dark launching as a bunch of yep. techniques. Could you share some experience around that? What do you recommend perhaps folks that are looking to get started on the journey? Is a canary the easiest thing? Is say, a dark launch the easiest thing? What's the yeah. best way to approach it? I think both Canary and Dark Launch slash feature flags are, are probably both required and relatively easy. You know, I what I would say is that most company staging environments, to be honest, is a useless dumping ground of nothingness. <laughs> and they kind of spend, uh, like for just, you know, this is, this is one area where I am comfortable talking about Lyft. And, you know, for years... Lyft staging environment, you know, basically what it was used for is we would, you know, test potentially destructive AWS actions, right? (laughs) Like making little balancers or like doing things like that. You know, there was very little use to it from a product perspective. Uh, One thing changed a few years ago at Lyft. And I, I think the single biggest thing that we did at Lyft to increase system reliability is we invested in what we call our simulated rides platform. And basically what that means is this is a sophisticated type of end to end test where we basically have fake drivers and fake passengers. And in our staging environment, they take, fake rights, you know, and <laughs> we, we use the system to both do load testing against prod, but also to run continuous fake traffic in our staging environment. Now, mm. is the simulated ride systems perfect? Does it cover every production flow? No, of course not. Um, does it cover a lot of the most important flows? Yes. And it has been really incredible for catching bugs. And what that system has done, though, is that it has made staging useful because now that we have a portion of the system running full time in staging, we do actually catch bugs in staging. Like if something Mm, seriously broke in staging, it, it will get caught during that staging deploy. But, you know, coming back to your question, I think for most companies that have not invested in in that type of environment for their staging, where they're running like actual system traffic, staging doesn't have that much value. Like I think a lot of companies have staging environments that are that are mostly dead from a production standpoint, I think investing really early on on. Canary deployments, you know, per yep. zone, per cell deployments is very important from a blast radius perspective. And then obviously 
quality observability about the system is required. And then some type of feature flagging system, whether that be using a, a product like LaunchDarkly or yeah. building something in-house. I think that a feature flagging dark launch system plus careful stage rollouts slash blue-green deploys, et cetera, I think can get people quite far. Something you mentioned there, which I was keen to pick up on, you mentioned about the simulated ride system, load testing in production. Did I understand yeah, that? Yeah, so we use the same system to both run continuously in staging, but when we are running production load tests, we can also point that system against prod just to verify that obviously our production system is up to a certain standard. Very cool. And I presume like some kind of dial you can turn to like ramp up the traffic and you presumably exactly. siphon the traffic off to like a no-op in terms of the back end. Yeah. So without getting into the deep technical details, we have a way of identifying things that are simulated. So again, it's not perfect by any means, but it has been a very, very successful program. Yeah, sounds intriguing. Very intriguing. If folks are looking to get started in some of the ideas you mentioned, like feature flagging and so forth, uh, obviously with Envoy, you can use it service mesh, you can use it at the edge. Where do you think the best way to get started? Is, should it be the edge and work inwards or should folks pick a technology like Istio or something, just get started with that as a service mesh? What do you think the best approach is? I think my general advice for people is to start with the problem, right? I, I, I think these days we have a lot of shiny technology and frankly, we have a lot of smaller organizations that are potentially taking on technology that's complicated and not necessarily fully robust yet. And, and again, it comes back to ROI. It's not completely yep. clear that smaller or organizations Building sophisticated things on top of Kubernetes with service mesh and all of that is not super clear to me that that's a great use of time, particularly for smaller orgs. So my advice to people is always keep it simple for as long as possible and then start with the problems that you're actually <laughs> trying to solve, right? So like a problem statement would be, I want to have fast dev or something like that, but then I want to be able to safely roll out in production. And that might lead you towards using something like LaunchDarkly or some type of feature flagging system. Or maybe your problem statement would be that I want to do blue-green deploys or I want to have some type of deploy rollout mechanism. And that might lead you to one of the past providers, right? That might allow you yep. to, to do that for free, right? And then in terms of service mesh or API gateway, again, I would start with the problem statement. It's like, are you having unexplained networking issues or do you need timeouts and retries and that type of functionality? Or do you want extra observability or mutual TLS or something like that? I think that would lead you towards a particular technical solution or on the API gateway, you know, do you need rate limiting and auth, et cetera, et cetera. So that's always my advice is to keep it simple and then don't start with the technology, start with a problem and then figure out what is the simplest technology that will solve that problem. Great advice, Matt. I think the irony is I've definitely learned this, but only as my career has progressed. I think many of us, when we start, we're like technology, technology, technology. Yeah. And then we yeah. learn. I, I am notoriously a late adopter. So I, I, I actually, I have made my career by, I like to follow everyone else by f five to seven years, which is 
kind of ironic, like given now that I do all this work in the cloud native space and we're yeah, at the yeah. forefront of certain things. But at, at the same time, it's like people will often laugh or complain, for example, that Envoy is written in C++. And, <laughs> and, and a lot of that is it's a late adopter mindset, right? Is yeah, that I, I've always taken the approach of trying to build on stable, proven technologies whenever possible. Right. And, and that's obviously as engineers, that's the trade-off that we have to make. I mean, you have to always balance doing something that might be more efficient, but is less proven yeah. versus what, what you know. Right. Yeah. Well said, Matt. Well said. Final question then before I let you go is, um, what do you think the future will look like, say, in five years time? Do you think we'll be developing functions as a service? Will we still be doing microservices? What will the platforms look like? Any, anything you want to yeah. dive into there? My feeling is that in the five to 10 year time frame, I think we are going to move much more towards a functional or a, or a serverless type deployment. I do think that as time goes on, there will be a consolidation on a fewer number of platforms as a service or functions as a service, just because from a development perspective, that's what developers want. I mean, they just want to write their service code and do some caching, have a talk to a database and do some networking and not have to think about it. Right. So from the average developer standpoint, you know, if you look at the, at the cloud offerings like Google functions or Amazon Fargate or those types Mm -hmm. of systems, I don't know why anyone wouldn't want that type of environment right now we are very early days there's a lot of engineering to do to make that stable enough that larger organizations would be willing to run their real-time applications on, on, on on that type of system but i think that's where we're going although i expect kubernetes to be around for quite some time and probably envoy will be around for quite some time and a bunch of these other technologies I think increasingly people won't ever interact with Kubernetes or interact with Envoy. They're going to interact with systems that are built on top. And and those systems, as we converge, they can become a little more opinionated because they're not dealing with all this legacy. Yeah. And that makes them simpler to use. But right now, you know, I, I think we're in a really early slash messy time in this cloud native yeah. space which is that we have a lot of legacy. We're trying to bridge it to this new world. It's super messy. It's hard to find products that can do that legacy to new bridging. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a multi-year journey like until yeah. I think m- the majority of organizations have a more consistent infrastructure. Super. super. Well, Matt, really appreciate your time today. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me.